So we are in a series called The Empowered Church. We're walking through the book of Acts line by line, kind of taking our time a little bit, talking a little bit, studying a little bit, and we are in part 19 of this series. I entitled the name of this message, The Power of Tearing Down Walls. Now, if you're brand new, you're going, man, part 19, what the heck? I I missed a whole bunch of stuff. You can always go back. Everything's free online. You can watch it or use the audio as you're driving around. That's helpful to kind of catch up, but you can also just read straight through the book of Acts, and you'll figure out what we've learned so far, and I would really encourage you to kind of catch up on the last couple messages, but I'm going to just tell you the gist of it. Here's basically what you missed. After Jesus Christ came to earth, died on the cross, rose again, he gathered his crew around him, and he said, guys, I'm out of here, and I want you to do what I do. I want you to be my body. I will make the decisions. I will be the head, but I need you to go out and carry out what I've been doing. And we find out that in history, Christianity went from nothing to world dominant in 300 years. Are you kidding me? How did that happen? The book of Acts tells you how it got started. Now, any organization or any type of organism or movement that gets started, it's kind of difficult. It's like a little baby moose trying to stand up. You know what I'm talking about? It's like there's victories and defeats and good stuff and bad stuff and good guys and bad guys. I mean, this whole book is full of intensity. I love this book. So I've been so excited that we've been teaching through it all year long. We're going to continue on that. Now, I'm going to draw your attention to the fill in the blank that is on the handout sheet or on the app. If you're watching online, you can just fire up the app. But I want to address that with a couple thoughts, and they all center around one concept, and that is progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. What that means is God continually shares more of his heart with his people. Do you guys believe that that is true? Yeah, now, some of us that have been around theological circles, when you hear a phrase like progressive revelation, there's an instant kind of guard that jumps up, right? Because you're like, hold up, hold up, like how far is that going to go? How far you want to push that, buddy? Like, what, are we getting new scripture today? You know, and they're going to go, listen, I, every cult starts with a phrase, I have a revelation from God. You know what I'm talking about? Ah, God came and visited me. I have a new idea. And you're like, oh, great. That's where we're going again. Okay, hold on, hold on. God never contradicts what he said before, but he certainly can change gears when necessary. The reason why is not that God is changing his mind. It's that when he completes one project, it can allow him to go to project number two. We find out that when Jesus came in, a lot of things started to shift and move. And that meant the early church was in a heavy learning curve. So let's talk about progressive revelation. You guys, we do it. It's not weird. It's normal. You do it with your kiddos. Nobody takes an infant and goes, hey, you need to be a productive member of society, right? The infant's like, I can't hold up my head. You're like, mow the lawn, wear a neck brace. What is wrong with you? You know what I'm saying? They're just like, oh my God. Okay, you know, bobbleheading it, right? So we always kind of give a little bit and then we give a little bit more and a little bit more. And then, and you're kind of progressively at a rate they can handle, you're raising them up and giving your ideas for them. That's, that's just practical. Well, God did that with humanity. Starts out with Adam and Eve and he's like, hey, kiddos, come here. I got two rules for you. You guys ready? You don't need to write this down. I think you can remember, okay? And he goes, be fruitful and multiply. They're like, yay. And then he was like, don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're like, boo. Okay, very simple, two rules, let's roll with this. Well, they they blew one of those, you know what I'm saying? Like they didn't even do the whole tree thing very well. Well, a little later on, we find out in history, God gives them 10 commandments. You're like, wow, that's more than two. And he's like, yes, it is. And then you find out, well, actually, in order to carry out those 10, if you want me to explain why, there's a bunch of stuff. We call it the Mosaic Law. So you end up finding out there's all these rules and regulations, and this is how it would work, and here's how you should handle things. Well, he was progressively telling everybody. Well, sure enough, after thousands of years of the Jews doing it one way, Jesus shows up and goes, hey, we're doing a new thing. 
You have heard it said that you should not murder. I'm telling you, the murderous thoughts in your heart are just the same. You have heard that you are not to commit adultery. I'm telling you, your thought life matters. He starts revealing even more of it. Then all of a sudden, he dies, raises again, brings the Holy Spirit, and he starts going, hey, guys, when I died for your sins, you are now in a whole different ball game. You are now in a new covenant, and everything is starting to morph and change. And all the new Jewish believers were like, Dude, I don't even know what to think of all this. This is too much change. This is freaking me out, right? It's tough. But that's how it has to go. God doesn't need to tell us anything, but he does. I think that's sweet. For us, having the indwelling Holy Spirit means he is constantly telling us stuff every day. Do you realize that? God has a lot to say. A lot of it is him just taking the revelation he's given and tailoring it to you. Hey, you have a plan for your life. Hey, you have gifts. Hey, you have abilities. You could do this. Well, how about you walk over here and have this divine appointment? And when God is talking to us, it starts making everything take on a different glow. I'll give you an example. When you read the Bible, it's actually a supernatural experience. But even practically, when you read the New Testament, you start realizing the Old Testament was even more powerful than you thought. Is that true? Let me give you an example. I don't know how many of you know the Moses getting the, is the Hebrew people out of Israel, uh, Egypt. You guys know this story? Uh, could you have just watched the movie, right? It's, it's a lot faster. Let my people go. You guys remember that one? Okay, cool. So if you watch that or, or read that story, you go, oh, I remember that one part at the end. Super scary, right? Where all of a sudden... The angel of death is going to come through. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, there's nothing better than sneezing on a microphone. <laughs> that all of a sudden the angel of death is going to come through and God's like, I will kill the firstborn that is in any household that does not have lamb's blood put over the doorframe. You guys remember this? And it was a way of making the Egyptian empire crack. So he brings in, you see, like in the movie, it's like green mist, and it's coming through. You're like, oh my gosh, here it comes, here it comes. And every time it would come to a house where there was blood on the doorframe, it would pass over that house, and you went, oh, that's the story of Passover. And we're like, wow, that's super cool. And it was, it was amazing. But when you read the New Testament, and you look backwards, you went, oh, Jesus was the sinless Lamb of God who his blood covers us, it was put on the cross, a wooden beam, that for any life that has the blood of Jesus over it, death passes over them and they have eternal life. And you're like, whoa, mind blow, right? Because you're like, this is crazy. Okay, that's what happens when God keeps talking. You know, it's interesting because as Jesus started all these things into motion, all of a sudden, he starts integrating women into the plan. He starts integrating Gentiles into the plan. All the people were like, You're, this is so weird. I don't even know what to do with all this. And some people just were rather interested in tradition than hearing from God. I sure hope we are not the people that are too hard-hearted to hear a fresh word from God. You know what I'm talking about? The minute you think you know everything about Christianity, God's done using you. He needs you to expand. He needs you to see him. Because the Holy Spirit being inside you is constantly guiding, constantly directing, constantly whispering to you. The only question is, are you listening? And is that not one of the most important things any Christian should ever do, is learn how to hear the voice of God? The reason why is none of us know what's going on. He's the only one that knows what's going on. So our job is not to be brilliant for God. Our job is to be obedient to God. Okay. For that reason alone is the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. It's this. Never assume you know God's plans. Never assume you know God's plans. You've got to always check in. Always check in. Always check in. You see, last week when we were together, we read this crazy story about Peter, who is kind of the head of the big dogs, right? So Jesus is kind of a team is called the apostles, and Peter was kind of their de facto leader. So he's out doing ministry in these different areas, and he comes across a guy that's paralyzed. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he heals the guy, and he can walk. 
Some other people grab him. They're like, dude, you're on a roll. We have this lady. She totally died. And he's like, I'll be right there. Shows up by the power of the Holy Spirit, raises her from the dead. So you're like, whoa, this crazy stuff. The early church has this supernatural power rolling so strong. But remember, Christianity became world dominant, not just because of supernatural ministry, although that was critical, but also the truth that it was bringing. We're about to watch the church get rocked with a truth bomb. What is that? They got to stop being racist. Oh, shoot. Here we go. Turn with me to Acts chapter 10, verse 1. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. Now, once again, the early church is a bunch of real people with real situations. It's not Narnia. It's not fake. It's real. Everyone's like, wait, Narnia is fake? Okay. Yeah, sorry to break that one to you. Okay, here we go. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, who gave money generously to the people and prayed continually to God. All right, a couple things. We got a brand new character that pops in. If you go, well, I'm brand new. I don't know this guy. None of us do. He's brand new. He's only talked about in this book. But he happens to live in Caesarea. Now, Caesarea, he's a military guy. He's an officer, runs 100 people. He's kind of a big deal. Caesarea in that area is the capital of the region by the Roman Empire, and it's the administrative city of their military. All that means Jews don't like it, right? I mean, when Jews were conquered by the Romans, nobody likes the person that is dominating them. So this city is like Gentile central. No Jews want to go there. You're going to find out God's going to make Peter go there, all right? How many times is God going to push you out of your comfort zone? Every time. All right, fantastic. Here we go. Now, the reason why this whole start of the story matters, and you're going to need to hear a history lesson for the whole story to make sense, is because we are now squarely in non-Jewish area. Does that matter? Yes, the early church is primarily Jewish. That they have now come to faith to believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, so we call them Messianic Jews. But they're still born, raised, baked in Jewish culture. So there's certain ways they view things. And Jews at that time did not like anyone that's not Jewish. And you go, well, why is that? Like, are they just being mean people? Nope, it's very practical. And I want you to go back with me in history because you're never gonna understand the Jew-Gentile divide without this history. So let's go back. It all began with one man named Abraham. Abraham is the father of all Jewish people. God calls him almost like as a nobody out of nowhere, and he says, hey, I want to do something special with you. Lord, what is that? Well, I want to make you into a massive people group, but remember, I'm the creator. I own all this stuff. I own all these people, but I don't want to just have anybody. I need you, and I'm going to make you into a mighty nation, but I'm going to make you very unique. And if I say unique, I don't think you understand how unique. I'm going to have you do weird stuff. You're going to be a living, moving, breathing, spiritual lesson on the planet. I'm going to have you do stuff that doesn't make sense to you because it's talking about a spiritual point. I'm going to have all kinds of rules and regulations on you. It's going to be a little bit weird, but understand this. I will bless you. I will make you militarily strong. I will make you a powerful people. Abraham's like, sweet, what do I got to do? He's like, two rules. Number one, I need you to be separate and distinct for me. Meaning, I need you to be different. I need you to be weird, guys. Okay? So I'm telling you right now, I need you to be separate. Now, we know that word is what? Holy. Holy means set apart for God. Okay? I need you to be holy. That's rule number one. Number two, lest you think it's all about you, here's rule number two. I'm going to bless you a ton, but it's not just for you. You're a distribution house for the whole world. I want to bless you that you might be a blessing. 
I'm going to bless the whole world through you. You are going to be my salt and light. If anyone ever on this planet wants to know more about me, if they have any questions for me, they should be able to go to you guys. And not only would your lifestyle say something, but you should be able to tell them what I'm like. Abraham says, sounds good. Let's go. So he takes off. Well, sure enough, that idea of being unique starts to get pressed in more and more. By the time we get four generations down, we end up finding out that the Hebrews end up in Egypt. You guys know the story? They are there for 400 years, and they are in slavery. Quick question. What would 400 years of slavery do to a people group? Hmm. Some of us don't need to imagine that far back, do we? Think about it. What does 400 years of slavery do to a people group? It makes you fuse together in an identity. Why? You can't trust anybody else. If you don't pull together, if you don't protect one another, if you don't hang out together, nothing's going to happen. What it creates, though, is an us versus them attitude. Everyone has treated you poorly, so you wall off and you become your own team. Does that make sense? So it creates a bit of a divide. Now, all of a sudden, they get out, it's the, they let my people go, they get out there and everything, and God says, hey, 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 I want to remind you, you're my people. You're not now just free to go do whatever you want. Listen, that holy thing is really specific. There are certain foods I don't want you to eat. There are certain ways you don't get to live. There are certain things you don't get to do. I want your priesthood a certain way. I want the tabernacle a certain way. I want everything in a very specific way. You do not get to just make stuff up on your own. If you do, there are severe penalties. I need you to be weird. Now, he moves them through the desert and lets them go into what's called the promised land military campaign. Anybody remember this? How in the world did the Jews get into Israel? How did they become the promised land? Well, if you remember, they went in and conquered it. And this is where some people that don't know the Bible are like, that's my problem with the Bible. God's like, hey, my people can go around killing anyone that they want and take their stuff. You're not reading the Bible right. Let's reset. Here's actually how it went. For the 400 years that the Jews were in slavery, God was working with those people groups for 400 years calling them to himself, calling them to himself, calling them to himself. And then what? They kept saying, nope, got more and more wicked, more and more wicked. Finally, God said, time out. You're done. I will destroy you. I will wipe you off the face of this planet. As a matter of fact, I'm going to use my people, the Jews. They're going to come in and get you out of the land. They're going to backfill it, and I'm going to give it to them. Now, the Jews are like, yes, he likes us better. Woo. All of a sudden, God goes, hold on a second. Let's be clear on this. You are not getting in because you're better. You are not getting in because you're stronger. You're not getting in because you're bigger. You're getting in because I said so. So I'm not talking about the rest of the planet. You don't get to take over the planet. This little area is yours. Any people group in there, they better be cleaned out, wiped out. If you do not, they're going to be a problem for you for the rest of your life. Well, guess what? They didn't take care of it. They have been in a war mentality for the next number of thousands of years. What happens if you are in a war mentality generation after generation after generation? Well, it kind of gives you kind of a mindset, does it not? What's the mindset? Us versus them. You're being attacked from the outside. You have civil war on the inside, and you just start getting agitated. You're irritated because everyone's attacking you all the time. Quick question, how's Israel doing today? Are they stopped being attacked? No, they're always being attacked, constantly. And it creates a dynamic, the dynamic of defensiveness. So now all of a sudden, God even has to work with them and move them out of the land, and we get the Samaritan half-breeds, and the Jews are like, I don't even like you. I don't even think I like me. I don't think I like anybody right now. Man, I hate everybody. Let's just hang out, be together. All of a sudden, Rome comes in and dominates them. They're like, now oh, I hate you. Man, who else can I hate? And they just become a closed system. Does that make sense? Well, here's what's interesting. That is the reality that the early church was born into. You want to talk about racism. 
You want to talk about prejudice. You want to talk about we don't hang out with you. We don't get near you. Now you know why. All right. But what if the Holy Spirit says, hey, guys, I have a secret. What? The Gentiles are going to be family. They're like, oh, heck no. And he's like, "Uh uh-huh. Just watch. And that's the story. Huh. How are you going to change somebody's mindset out of racism? I wonder if Jesus can do that. Interesting. So, here's what we have. We have a man who's a super good guy. He's like almost like Jewish without being Jewish. He's not born Jewish, but he's super into the God of the Jewish people. We call him Yahweh. So he's out there and he's worshiping. His life is practically awesome. He's out there giving money to the poor and being generous and being loving. All the Jews love him. All the Romans love him. So this guy, all of a sudden, who God looks out at, it says he has a prayer life that is continual. How awesome is that? He's constantly connected with God. This guy is legit. So God selects him. Take a look at verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, which is 3 p.m., Cornelius clearly in a vision saw an angel from God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to the city of Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Pause. What's a vision? The only difference between a vision and a dream is one, you're awake, one, you're asleep. That's it. Quick side note. Have any of you ever had a dream that seemed super real? Right? If you didn't, you might be dead. Okay, everyone was like, no, I have not. Okay, all right, play with me here. Here we go. I have very, very vivid dreams. You ever had a dream where you were really angry at your spouse when you woke up? Right? You were like, how dare you? They were like, I have been sleeping the entire time. What is wrong with you? Okay? Okay, so dreams are super vivid, super real. You wake up, your heart's racing. It's like you were there. Is that true? Okay, imagine that happening when you're awake. That's a vision. That's the most intense form of a vision, which that process would be what's called a trance, meaning if you were fully, I'm seeing in another dimension, oh my gosh, I can't do anything. I certainly can't drive right now, right? Okay, that would be an intense vision. Now, visions can be something super small. The other side of the pendulum is you just saw an image flash in front of your face. That's still a vision where you're like, oh my gosh, I feel like I just saw something, or I saw an angel, or I saw this, or I saw that. If you see anything visually, it's going to be called a vision. Okay, well, sure enough, it says this guy had a vision, and in the vision, an angel walks in, almost like the angel is like, and play? Now I'm going to walk right in. Hey, so anyway, while you're having a vision, hi, I'm an angel, and he comes in and just terrifies this guy. Quick question, why are angels so terrifying? Because here's what we think in our minds. There's good guys and bad guys. Good guys are angels, bad guys are demons. Angels are super sweet. And they're little fat babies that have little wings. And then they fly around like this. And you're like, oh, you're so cute, and pinch their cheeks, okay? And then, like, demons are like, ah, and they're all reptilian and stuff like that. And you're like, oh, those are scary. Okay, that is not true. That is Hollywood. So what you have is the Bible describes heavenly beings with kind of one big lump term called angel. Angel actually means messenger, So if you're not a messenger, you're not technically an angel. But basically, the Bible's like, dude, don't get complicated with me. It's one catch-all. Good guys are angels. Bad guys are what? Fallen angels. But really, he means all the beings, seraphim, cherubim, archangels, messenger angels, warrior angels. He's like, let's not get technical. Heavenly beings, whatever you want to call a supernatural being, cool. We're talking about that. Why are they so scary? couple reasons. Number one, they tend to show up uninvited. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, if I'm in my room and Minnie Mouse shows up, I will freak out. (laughs) There's a stinking mouse with a dress in my room. I don't care how sweet she is. I know she's kind. I don't want her in my room, and I don't know how she got here, and that's going to make me panic. So, first of all, it's unsettling. The second thing is there's something about their presence 
There is something about a power emanating from them. You know dang well when you're in the presence of an angel, they are faster than you, smarter than you, stronger than you. You know they're legit. You also know they have been in the presence of God and there is a glow off of them that the minute you see them, you just lose yourself and just fall down. Okay? So, this guy has a vision and a visitation. So, he's really struggling today. But here's what's interesting about visions. Would God still use visions today? Absolutely. You're like, well, I don't know if I believe in that kind of stuff. All right, let's talk about it. Do you realize that visions were the number one most common way that God spoke to all prophets all time? It was the primary way. As a matter of fact, 19 people are listed in the Bible by name and that they saw a vision. 19 people, that's a lot. But it's assumed that every single prophet that's ever mentioned in Scripture saw visions. So that's an awful lot of people. God works in visual imagery. And you're like, yeah, well, he used to. No, no. He still does. How do we know that? Because when the Holy Spirit came upon the church, we call it Pentecost. Do you guys remember that story? When he came upon the church, all kinds of crazy supernatural stuff started hitting. Peter stands up and begins to explain why. And he cites a prophecy from a man named Joel in the Old Testament. And here's how it goes. In the last days, side note, what are the last days? They're now. They're any time after Jesus came. So he says, our new normal will be, and this is what he says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Holy Spirit on all flesh. Meaning, not just a few people get the Holy Spirit, every believer gets the Holy Spirit. And your young sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Holy Spirit, and they will prophesy. That is a prophecy for today. Do visions still happen? Absolutely. You go, well, I've never had one. Quick question for you. What would you do if you did? You ready for one? Many of you just need a new pair of shorts. Maybe you're not used to it. Maybe you're moving so fast, you wouldn't even know if God gave you an image. You just assume something went wrong. But what if God was trying to talk to you? Would you even know? Hmm. Interesting. So, what did the angel have to say? One of the most beautiful messages. Here's what he said. Hey, Cornelius, I know you're not sure if we hear your prayers. We heard every single one. As a matter of fact, every good thing that you've done we took note of. I just need you to know. We're not missing you, buddy. The word he uses is God has it as a memorial. That word means God didn't just see it. God didn't just note it. It was important to him, and he marked it down. The majority of us in this room, or that can hear my voice, struggle to believe that your prayers are heard by anybody. How do I know that? Because it's just human nature. I know a lot of you don't pray because you don't think it works. You don't think it matters. You don't think it's going past the ceiling. And I know how you are. You're like all the rest of us. Almost all your prayers are in your head. Is that true? And the reason why is you're afraid if they're out loud, someone will put you on meds. Yeah? So you keep it in your head, and you're like, I sure hope God can hear this. I sure hope God can read my mind. I sure hope God knows what I'm talking about. I don't know if it's going out of the room. Then when everyone's gone from the house, you pray out loud, right? The dog's like, what? <laughs> so you start praying out loud, and you're talking. You're like, I don't know if it's going anywhere. I don't even know if I'm doing it right. Yeah? And we're always doubting, can God hear me? Here's a beautiful reminder of, hey, guys, I know you can't feel it but I'm always listening. I'm always with you. And by the way, there's nothing really awesome you're going to do for me that I'm not going to see. Okay? I mark it. It's in my heart. I got you. Yeah? That's how personal God is. Let's move forward. Verse 9. The next day, as 
Cornelius' little team were on their journey to approach the city. Peter went up on the flat housetop above the house at noon to pray. And he became hungry and he wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. Oh, there's that word. He's about to have an extreme vision experience. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice, we later learn is God, that says, get up, Peter, kill and eat these animals. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is unclean. And the voice came to him a second time and said, what God has made clean, do not call unclean. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Okay, well, that's weird too. So first you have Cornelius having a weird experience. Now you have Peter having a weird experience. And really, it's God's way of getting those guys together. But what was this vision? It was super intense. There's a sheet coming down. The whole animal kingdom's on it. And some voice is like, I want you to eat them all. Peter's like, no, I'm not doing that. Which, by the way, I would love to say that I would argue back, but I'm the type of guy that if a voice is like, eat, I'm like, yes, sir. And I just start cutting into a bat. You know what I'm saying? I'm just like, this is delicious. I don't, you know, Ozzy said it was good. I had no idea. (laughs) How did he have the guts to be able to like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Well, a couple things. Number one, he's been hanging out with Jesus. So the whole supernatural thing, it doesn't overwhelm him. But really, the reason why is he's like, hey, I may not be a perfect guy, but I'm a legit Jew. And I darn well know that for thousands of years, we don't eat unclean stuff. So that's not going to be a thing. We never have since our inception. So to hear any experience or voice tell me that we are, yeah, I'm not buying that. And so that voice, I know it's you, God, but you know what I think this is? I think this is a test. I think you'd be like, eat it. And I'd be like, yeah. And he's like, no, I caught you. You're like, ah, shoot, I always fail that one. So he was like, no, I'm not doing it. And God's like, hold up, hold up, hold up. Appreciate it. Appreciate the discipline. I get to change the rules. And I changed the rules because I did something different and changed the scenario. That stuff's clean now. He's like, what? Oh, that's a terrible idea. Nobody's going to believe me. Like, that's part of who we are. The kosher thing is us, right? Like, we can't even go in people's houses because of what they eat, and we don't want to touch their stuff because it's not clean. We have always been the clean, unclean people. Like, this whole thing about ritually right, ritually wrong, that is our identity. God, you can't change serious stuff. And God's going, I'm sorry, who are you? Did you just tell me what I could and could not do? Yeah, no, that's not going to work, buddy. I called it clean. We're good. Yes, sir? Yes, sir. Okay, right on. Interesting side note. Peter could have tried to quench the Holy Spirit and shut it down, right? How do we know that? Because you and I are doing it all the time. Yeah? Okay. So let's talk about that for a moment because there's a very powerful principle that I desperately need us to understand at Bridgeway. In three out of the four Gospels, Jesus teaches a parable, and it's recorded, and it says this, no one pours new wine into old wineskins, or they will burst. You always pour new wine into new wineskins. And you're like, weird analogy. Okay, what is your point? Here's his point. So practically speaking, wineskins were made out of animal skins, so they were leather. And what happened was, is that leather has a certain amount of give unless it dries out. So if you put new wine into a new wineskin, it begins a fermentation process that creates gas, which creates pressure, and it has to flex and give. Well, if that's empty for a while and it dries up and you pour new wine in it, it's going to want to bubble and expand again, and that wineskin's like, I'm done expanding, and it breaks. You always pour new wine into flexible, malleable new skin. What's the point for us? The minute you think you know everything about God, you're done. The minute you are more interested in tradition than hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit, he can't use you. You you understand what I'm talking about? May we never be people at Bridgeway, those who would say, God, I don't do that. Hold on a second. Where is the humility? If it's God, 
We got to do some testing to figure that out. If it's biblical, we got to do some testing to figure that out. Because not all visions are legit, not all experiences are legit, not all truths are legit. Okay, cool. If we do our homework and it's God, here's what you need to do. Adjust. May we never be so hard-hearted that he can't pour new revelation into our spirit. May we never be people he has to pass over to go to somebody else because we weren't listening. You all know what I'm talking about? All right, this is a big deal. All right, pick it up in verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, they stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Get up, go down, and accompany them without hesitation, for I've sent them. Peter went down to the men and he said, I'm the one you're looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said, well, our boss, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who's well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in to stay the night. Quick question. Do you have any time for reflection that God could even talk to you? Or are you always running? You're always from one thing to the next. Every car ride is blasting music or blasting some type of talk radio or sports radio. Is there any time that God can get you quiet? Right? Because here's what's interesting. Peter has this tremendous experience. Cornelius has this tremendous experience, but it only happened when they were in prayer and life had quieted down. Is it possible you haven't had a lot of experiences with God because he can't seem to get a word in edgewise? Is it possible that he's not going to compete with the noise and he's waiting for you to get quiet? See, here's one of my big problems. One of my big problems is that many of us have this demeanor. God wants to get me a message. He can do that. Hold on. Did you say he needs to cater to your lifestyle? See, if you're a skeptic and you sit there with your arms crossed and say, well, God needs to come try to figure things out for me, I think you think you're God. No, if you want to hear from your creator, how about you pursue him? Does that make sense? Well, you got to come. You could always come to me. Stop it. You're the servant. You go to him. Lord, what must I do that I might hear your voice? Yeah, that should be our demeanor. It says, then the Holy Spirit tells him something very specific. There's three men downstairs. They need to go to your house. All that is very detailed. How in the world did he hear all that? I have no idea, but he is so in tuned and so clicked in. He can just hear the Holy Spirit talk to him like that. But I think this is so fascinating to me because he said, do it without hesitation. Well, why would Peter hesitate? It's God talking. Don't we always do what God says? No, we do not. So just like us, the Holy Spirit's like, da, 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 before you start, we're not playing that game. I need you to do it. This is my idea. Why would he hesitate? Well, we talked about the Jewish-Gentile divide. He's looking out the window. He's like, ah, shoot, they're Gentiles. I don't like those people. And now here's the deal. They're going to be like, oh, can we come in and eat something? I'm like, whatever. And then... They're, they're going to ask me to do something, and at some point, they're probably going to ask me to go to their house. I don't want to do that. Man, this bugs me. Those people bug me. And the Holy Spirit is like, I'm sorry, did you say that you're not going to minister to somebody? Hmm. Yeah, you don't have that right. I call it. Yeah? Okay. So he moves through. Do we all understand that the first thing that's difficult is hearing the voice of God? Second thing is understanding what he meant. Third thing is actually doing something about it, right? How many of us have actually heard the voice of God, but we overanalyzed it long enough for the moment to pass? Right? I mean, that's, isn't that what we do? Lord, I'm still praying on it, still thinking about it. He's like, did you just say you're praying about it? I'm talking to you right now, <laughs> right? I'm not sure what type of excuse you're coming up with here, but you're just basically stalling. Is that correct? Okay. Peter went. 
We are not to be merely hearers of the word, but what? Doers of the word. Verse 23, the next day, Peter got up and went away with this new group, and he brought six of his brothers from Joppa to accompany them. And on the following day, they entered Gentile central Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet, and began worshiping him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, stand up, I too am a man. Okay, that was a little weird. (laughs) Okay, so Peter shows up, and Cornelius is like, oh my gosh, you're here, ah, and it just falls down, and he's like, oh, you're amazing, you're great, and Peter's like, oh, this is awkward. Okay, hey, buddy, hey, buddy, whoa, 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 come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, I'm a dude, you're a dude. There's God and dudes. We're just dudes. And if I let you do that and you start creating this weird, like, first of all, God only gets worship, not people. Second of all, if you do that pedestal thing, it's going to throw off your whole theology. Listen, there's just people, and then there's God. Okay, we're all right here. So he kind of deflates that situation and invites him back up. He's not being rude. Notice Peter's humility is legit. He knows he's not God. Here's the problem with many Christians. We act like we're not God, but we truly believe we are. What do I mean? We use what's called false humility, not true humility. False humility is that you believe you're God, but you don't want anyone else to know that, so you fake it. And it sounds a little something like this. Uh, Hey, Pastor Lance, I really appreciated the sermon. It's all God. It's all God. It's not me. I'm sorry, what did you just say? I was just trying to say thanks for the sermon. I know, it's not me. It's all the Lord. So, Lord, if you were blessed, it was God. You're like, okay, now you're just being weird. What is wrong with you? I'm just saying, I don't take any glory. I don't take any glory. It's all God. It's all God. Now, here's the problem. If you truly believe that, that's one thing. But in my mind, if I'm constantly going, dude, you know how hard I worked on that sermon? I'm sure glad it landed and I wasn't a total bust. That would be embarrassing. And I'm so glad that finally the communication worked. I actually felt pretty good about that message, but I didn't know if it landed. And you just encouraged me that it landed. But I can't say any of that, so I start faking like I'm extra holy. It's all God. Okay, yeah, bro, we get that. However, I already talked to God, gave him credit for his. I'm telling you, thank you for doing the hard work. Here's how you should respond with true humility. Hey, Pastor Lance, thank you for that message. That was awesome. And I go, wow, that's really encouraging. Thank you. Man, God's good, huh? That's a different ballgame. That's acknowledging I did hard work. Thank you for talking about my peace. But if there was true transformation, it's going to come from the Lord. Does that make sense? But now I'm not being weird. Okay, true humility tends to come from people that have already seen failure. Because you're not pretending to be God anymore. Yeah? Once you know you're not God, you're a much nicer person to hang out with. Yeah? It says, Cornelius fell down to worship Peter. Why did he do that? I mean, should this be like his big embarrassment moment where you're like, what an idiot. Can't believe he did that. No, that's not how I see it. You know how I see it? This is a man so desperate for God that when something miraculous like this guy shows up, He's like, I guess you're part of God's plan. I'm all in. And he just dives in. You know, sometimes people that are desperate for God's presence do silly things. And we can look at them and we can make fun of them and we can look at them and go, oh my gosh, you're so stupid. Or we can look at them and go, I wish I wanted God as much as you wanted God. Be very careful on casting judgment, right? Because you see like new believers, they do, they're all in and they do crazy stuff and then you giggle in the back. Hold on a second. Why is their heart softer than yours? Why do they want Jesus more than you do? I'm so proud of this guy. Now, he made an error. He didn't know. Okay. Peter told him, and he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. I'm just, I'm just so excited that you're here. Right? Cool. Can you imagine coming to church with the anticipation that God's going to talk to you? And he's like, I can't wait for you to tell me what you want. Let's go. It's cool. Verse 27, as he talked with them, as Peter talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to him, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit any one of another nation. Okay, pause. God never said that. But that's what it had become. But God has shown me that I should not call any 
person unclean. Hold up. Wait, wait, wait. I thought the dream was about animals. I thought it was about unclean foods. How the heck did we get over to people? Something just shifted. Somehow the Holy Spirit connected a couple dots, right? Why? What is the ramification that God can make something clean? Well, what if that expands to people? Oh, shoot. You're not telling me we got to hang out with Gentiles, are you? And the Holy Spirit just smiles. Peter said, so, after I realized that, when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why did you send for me? Cornelius said, well, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon Peter. He's lodging at Simon the Tanner's house by the sea. So I sent for you at once. You've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we're all here in the presence of God to hear everything you've been commanded by the Lord. Let's go. Quick note. Why is his whole family there? Did you guys see that? The whole place is packed. Why? And you're like, well, come on. See, Apostle Peter, he's like a rock star. Of course you would have everybody. No, no, no. Remember, he didn't even know who Peter was. This is not a guy that has any idea who the apostles are. His whole family has no idea who they are. So why in the world did he pack his house out to hear Peter who he does not know? Because the account that we just read about what happened is not the full account. How do we know that? Because later on in this book, Peter's going to retell the story and add in a very important line, which is what? Listen to this. This is crazy. Cornelius, send for Peter in Joppa, quote, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household." end quote. Is that kind of an important part? Yeah. When the angel tells you that, you grab as many of your family as you possibly can and shove them all in one house. And you're like, Peter, go. This is going to be awesome. Because an angel just told me you're going to show up. I can't wait for this. Okay. Okay. So let, let's land this plane. He said, you all know that it's against the law for me to hang out with you. Hmm. Actually, it's not. So what you're really watching is God try to change the mindset of the new Jewish Christians. That's going to be really hard. Thousands of years of doing it one way, and then what, you're going to change it? How do we do that? Well, the place where it most matters, as opposed to food, is people. Somehow, God had to get through his pre prejudice and his racism. Many of us get really defensive when somebody tells us that we are prejudiced. I don't understand that. I don't get why you would be defensive. Because unless you're omniscient, which means you know everything, like God, you're obviously ignorant in some areas. Is that correct? If anyone ever points out your ignorance, that's just human. That's not an insult. It just means you can't know what you can't know. It's not that, it's not like, oh my gosh, how dare you call me human? It's like, well, we're all kind of like that. So when we talk about prejudice, everyone has prejudice. Prejudice means you're believing things about other people that are not true and they tend towards the negative. So here's what's interesting. This prejudice is saying, well, I know. If you don't know everything, you fill in the gaps with your information. It's what all people do doesn't matter who you are, and it doesn't always have to be with ethnic groups. Sometimes you're prejudiced against rich people. If you don't have a lot, you might hate the fact that you work harder than rich people and rich people get all the money. You may really resist that and go, I don't like those people. Well, what do you mean those people? Oh, well, hold on, hold on. You may be, what, prejudiced against people, the homeless, the poor. They're not working. They're not. Hold on, hold on. I think you're filling in some gaps there, right? I'm not quite sure that's always accurate. All right? Maybe you're prejudiced against what? Somebody from another faith group. Maybe you're prejudiced against a people group. Maybe you're going, I don't love those people. So hold on. You don't get to tell God who you will love and who you will not love. You will do what he tells you. Is that correct? So what is our job? Our job is to take all of our bias and lay it on the altar of God and say, until I see it your way, I'm not done. That's it. It's not insulting. It's just practical. 
Of course we don't see it like God yet. We're not done. But shouldn't we every day say, Lord, help me to see it your way. Help me to see it your way, especially when it comes to people. Because if we ever put up a wall that God didn't tell us to put up, we're out of line. If you ever create a distance with another person that God didn't ask you to create that distance, it's not okay. Why? We are in the people business. What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and what? Love your neighbor as yourself. If you miss it on those, you're not in Christianity anymore. Does that make sense? If there's one thing we got to get right, it's love. And that has to do with God and people. So we have to do the hard work. God, what am I believing right now that's not right? What am I thinking right now about that people group? What am I thinking right now about that person that is not the way you see them? God, change my heart. Change my heart. Why? Because of all people on the planet, people should be safe around Christians. Is that correct? You should never have to walk into a church and feel in danger that someone hates you. You should never be around a Christian and know that you will be rejected. All I'm trying to tell you is there can be boundaries, there can be healthy choices, there can be, hey, this isn't good behavior. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you have a rejection in your heart prepared, I'm not quite sure it's from the Lord. All this polarization in the United States that has been happening, in my opinion, is the work of the enemy. And I truly believe that if we're ever going to break through, it's going to be legit Christians that will help push us through. Yeah? Until we see them like Jesus, we're not done. Amen? Let me close in prayer. We'll get out of here. Heavenly Father, you are good. Lord, I think the way that we think is pretty limited. We only see it from our perspective. It's totally normal, God, but I'm not quite sure it's best. So right now in this holy moment, we just pray that you would open our eyes. That God, that you wanted to do something brand new in the early church and you got so much resistance. And Lord, it's still happening right now. Holy Spirit, you're always trying to move us and, and have us do stuff with you and, and push us out of our comfort zone and we're still resistant. So God, I just pray, we want to be those adventurous Christians that are alive and active and it's personal with you and we say an automatic yes, sir, and we're ready to go and it's fun and it's vibrant and we get to see miracles and signs and wonders. And so Lord, we want to be those people soft in your hands, moldable clay, that we would never be dry wineskins, but we would always have flex, always have give, saying, Lord, what do you desire? We'll adjust for you. And so, Lord, would you open our eyes in Jesus' name? Amen.